HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Myriad Restaurant Group, whose restaurants include Tribeca Grill, Nobu, and Batard. For more information, visit myriadrestaurantgroup.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right. Well, you know, usually I'm in a really good mood when I sit down in here today, but, um, well, first of all, this is Katie Kiefer. I'm your host, and the show is called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights, in case you didn't know that. Um, I'm telling you, folks, uh, Dave, my engineer, and I were just saying, like, we are living through a not-so-slowly-moving coup d'etat. It was Bill Maher who suggested that that's what was going on back before the election. Uh, now I think it is absolutely crystal clear with the installation of Steve Bannon uh, on the, um, you know, into the NSA. It's just like, what? And discarding the general and the, you know, and the, and the, and the joint chiefs of staff. I'm, I'm speechless. Anyway, it's time for joys and sorrows. Um, and so I did, a, I made a point of sort of avoiding anything political because it just makes me cry. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I literally wept with shame, humiliation, and rage when the ban on immigration uh, was instituted on Friday. Anyway, enough about that. So um, the other day I saw an ad, uh, I forget whether it was on television or in print, uh, for Progresso. Progresso soups. We all know them. We probably, most of us grew up eating some of them anyway. Um, it was like the thing you could make for yourself when you were little and mom wasn't around, whatever. Anyway, um, it advertises itself, uh, it was a chicken soup, and it was advertising it as antibiotic and hormone-free. And that got me thinking, um, hormones are never administered to chickens. So, in fact, they have been banned from poultry feed for mm, 50 years now. And I just wanted to point this out because um, it's it's a greenwashing technique. Uh, you know, when you tell people that something is this and that, you know, it's like saying something is all natural. When you say it's hormone-free, that means nothing because it never had hormones in it. And I just, I just wanted to point that out. And I also wanted to point out that... Um, 
that hormones are actually routinely used in beef cattle and also dairy cattle, um, but especially in, but you know, in deep beef cattle. And uh, typically when they enter a feedlot, it makes them grow faster and it reduces the time they spend uh, eating expensive grain. So beef cattle, yes, hormone fed. Poultry, no, no hormones. Just remember that. The next time you see that on the packaging, it's like, it's just a technique. It's a marketing technique. And it just reminds me again and again of how duplicitous um, are, you know, the way food is advertised in this country. Um, So anyway, you can actually read about this on the poultrysite.com, by the way. Um, There's a very interesting long piece about uh, the use of hormones in various parts of domestic agriculture. Many of you have listened to my shows uh, for a while, and one of the guests that I've had on and um, one of the issues that I've covered on numerous occasions is the issue of the quality of drinking water in Des Moines, Iowa. This is a situation where um, in a heavily uh, agricultural state with lots of feedlot, lots of, uh, of pork operations and lots of corn and soy, there is an enormous amount of agricultural runoff into the Raccoon and Des Moines rivers. And so um, about a year and a half ago, Bill Stowe, who runs the Des Moines Waterworks, uh, in, because he could get no relief from the governor, uh, Terry Branstad, who <laughs> I recently read somebody from Cedar Rapids who called him. Terry brain dead, but um, anyway, <laughs> Terry Branstad offered no help uh, to the citizens of Des Moines, and um, and ruled in favor of allowing agricultural interests to maintain their status quo of polluting the waterways, and so. Bill Stowe instituted uh, two lawsuits. One uh, went into the Iowa Supreme Court, and one is uh, still pending. It's with the federal court system. And the idea was to force these agricultural communities to actually pay for remediating <clears throat> remediating, and also in, in uh, introducing infrastructure that will allow these rivers to remain less polluted or become less polluted than they currently are. So these are called drainage tiles. Anyway, long story short, <clears throat> guess what? He lost in the Iowa Supreme Court. But as he said... He was hardly surprised, um, and neither am I, especially now. But the suit uh, will go forward in federal courts, and in June, I believe, is the next court date for that, and it will be interesting to see what the federal courts decide. So stay tuned for that, because we'll, we'll get Bill Stowe back on the air to, to talk about that. Um, and then uh, I thought, I thought it would be fun to look at trend watches for 2017, and according to Campbell Soup, which does a trend watch every year, uh, 2017 will be a big year for marine products, and that goes beyond nori and spirulina um it's uh algae products are going to be flooding the markets in all sorts of forms of protein and uh supplements and snacks and you name it it will be but i uh have been watching sort of the interest in algae products for a while because i read all those trade magazines right and in a couple of weeks, I'll be interviewing the CEO of a company called Zevo Bioscience that is making products from algae that um, that will feed some humans, but also are going to be destined for animal feed because it's a high-protein product. And so it will take the place of some of the grain that is currently fed to uh, ruminants especially, but also, I think, to pigs and chickens. So we'll learn all about that in a few weeks. I just wanted to let you know that that's, A, a trend, and B, I'm on it. Okay, in case you were worried. And um, last but not least, by any means, uh, for fans of Twinkies, uh, 
Hostess is working overtime to regain their preeminent position as a, quote, indulgent snack. And that's what they call those nutrition-free sugar bombs, in case you were wondering. They are indulgences. Um, They are reformulating them to join the BFY category. This is true, a true category. It's the better for you category. Um, And they are doing that by removing the undesirable ingredients such as trans fats and adding positives such as eight grams of whole grain in their banana muffins so as to meet school nutrition standards. I can only marvel at the ingenuity behind these measures. Anyway, just in case you were wondering, (laughs) Hostess is alive and well, and it's going to be better for you than ever. So... So keep buying those Twinkies, people. Um, They're also finding that artificial colors are not popular. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, we are going to take a short break. We'll be right back with a really wonderful guest. Nancy Hoonergarth is a writer for... Well, she caught my eye for a Forbes article that she wrote a few months ago, but she has written extensively on school food issues and uh, sugar, soda taxes, and so on. Um, So I'm really looking forward to meeting her on the air and to um, plumbing her depths about all manner of issues that relate to both school food and also to the food movement, because as you will soon find out, that was the reason that I uh, initially invited her on. So stay tuned. We'll listen to this quick sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Nancy Hunegarth. We are proud to count the Myriad Restaurant Group as a business member of the Heritage Radio Network. Created by renowned restaurateur Drew Nieperent, Myriad consists of a diverse roster of restaurants, each one unique and memorable. Delicious food, excellent service, and genuine value are at the core of Myriad's storied history. Tribeca Grill, celebrating its 27th anniversary, helped define the Tribeca neighborhood and is the perennial winner of the Wine Spectator's Grand Award. Nobu New York has innovated new-style Japanese cuisine for over 20 years and is now joined by Nobu 57, cooking Nobu's revered signature dishes. Batard, serving modern European cuisine, was named the Best New Restaurant of 2014 by Pete Wells in the New York Times, and Best New Restaurant in America in 2015 by the James Beard Foundation, as well as earning a Michelin star. Myriad also serves up great ballpark dining at the Porsche Grill at City Field and tasty burgers at the Daily Burger in Madison Square Garden. The common thread is to be a good citizen in the communities they serve through the support of numerous charitable organizations. For more information, visit myriadrestaurantgroup.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, my guest today is Nancy Hoonergarth, the president of Nancy F. Hoonergarth Consulting, which specializes in nutrition and physical activity advocacy and policy change. She regularly posts to her blog and writes frequently for numerous publications, including Forbes, where I found her, the New York Times, Huffington Post, Civil Eats, Grist, and many, many, many other regional and national newspapers on the subjects of food reform. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Well, thank you for having me. Um, I was so impressed with your piece, um, and now it seems like so long ago, and 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 almost I wouldn't say irrelevant, but like facing what we face today <laughs> compared to what we were thinking about in October, which is when I think I saw that. Um, your piece was called "The Disheartening Divide Between Food Reform Realists and Idealists," um, and I really read that with so much interest because I'm uh, so often made aware of the divides between the so-called progressive food movement. Um, And I was wondering, just to start off the show, like, what was the catalyst for that piece? What made you want to write that? Well, just to give you a little bit uh, more about my background, I got Mm -hmm. into this um, as an angry mom back in in 2002. So I've been the root of working... um, you know, within a school district trying to improve food. I, I ran a countywide coalition. I eventually ran a, a statewide coalition. And uh, now, I, now I'm where I am today. Um, so I've had a lot of experience working in the trenches uh, and, and trying to make change. And one of my big heroes is Michael Pollan, as mm-hmm. is many people. And I just was quite startled by uh, a story that he um, wrote that was in the New York Times. I think it was called, Why Did the, Why Did the Obamas Fail to Take on Corporate Agriculture? It was back in October. Yeah, I saw that. And, mm-hmm. and, and he basically gave the president and first lady a bit of a thrashing <laughs> um, and, and talked about that they'd been out lobbied by big food and that they really hadn't made any changes that were really... Uh, that were really important. And when I read that, I thought that wasn't true, and I thought that indicated that um, Pollan has not worked in the trenches and does not know what it's like to work in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And I think he didn't um, do justice to the First Lady and the President, who, in my opinion, made many substantial changes. Not all that we need, uh, not not even close, but they, they made a huge dent um, in 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 leading the path towards a healthier food system. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I think that uh, if nothing else, they raised awareness in a way that no previous administration has ever done. And uh, trying to out-lobby the lobbyists in the food industry uh, is really an uphill battle. Um, I, I was very dismayed by Michael Pollan's article about that. I, I, I thoroughly agreed with yours. So, so take us through some of the main points that you make. Because just, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, but to sort of compare and contrast, because I wanted to talk about, you know, compared to what the Obama administration at least attempted to do, and what we are facing under the Trump administration in terms of any kind of movement forward. Uh, in agriculture, in food policy, in school food, etc. Um, I think that uh, it bears um, talking about some of the issues that you brought up, including the siloization and the idealists versus the realists. So let's let's dive into some of those points right now. Sure. Well, well, let's talk about the idealists versus the realists first. I mean, unless you work in the trenches and you are working with a school district, you are working with a legislature, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to get policies passed, you have no idea um, how difficult it is and why, um, ultimately, compromises have to be made. And, you know, I've I've done this, you know, like I said, I started doing this in 2002 um, on the local level. I, I... 
I have lobbied in, you know, the state, I've lobbied in New York State uh, Capitol, Albany. I've lobbied at the federal level, um, at the Senate. And you have to make compromises. You can come in all idealistic with a policy idea that is absolutely right. It's the thing that should be done. It's the thing that makes the most sense. Um, for the health of America, for sustainability, um, you know, for, for all the right reasons. But yeah. it's just not going to get passed. And, you know, as an advocate, you know, who is actually there trying to get things passed, you have to make hard compromises. So, so that was one thing I talked about, that criticizing the compromises made by the Obama administration was like getting a dagger to the heart of the advocates who are in the trenches and have been in the trenches like me. We've gotten that same kind of criticism, too. Oh, why did you give up on, you know, A, B, or C and only get, uh, you know, E, F, G? Well, there are good reasons, and change is incremental. So keep in mind that unless you've spoken in front of a legislature, unless you've negotiated, you have no idea the compromises you have to make to get any changes um, made into law or regulation. Can you explain why some of these, um, what you have described and, and which I agree with, you know, some of these obviously better policy moves, why do they encounter so much resistance? Kind of tease out that that for us so we understand what what it is that you're fighting against. I mean, who who is saying, oh, no, we're not going to you know, source from, we're not going to get our apples from upstate New York. We're going to buy them from, from Washington state because I don't know, because that's what we've been doing. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, can you, cause I mean, sometimes it's something as simple as that, right? But it's still a fight. Yeah. Well, you have to realize that there, you're not just talking to legislature, legislators, you're not just talking to decision makers, you're talking to a lot of lobbyists. Maybe not directly, but they're in the ear of the legislators. They're in the ear of the decision makers. And their views are just as important as your views. I happen to always travel with public, among public health circles. That's, that's how I got involved in this. Um, when I worked in a coalition, I teamed up with a lot of public health groups, you know, some, sure. like the Cancer Society, Diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, pretty mainstream groups. And... You know, people, people just don't understand that these lobbyists have incredible power with our legislators and decision makers. So we can come in with the statistics. We can come in with the data. We can come in with a cute child right. who, you know, we say, you know, what, what, why would you possibly want to keep a certain junk food on the menu when, you know, even your grandmother would tell you, this is a poor idea. This is not real food. But these lobbyists, these corporations, these industries have tremendous power. And that's a lot of the time who you're fighting against and, and where you have to compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, to go on from that, I, I, one of the points that you made in your piece was um, that there is this, this sort of Siloing, siloing. I mean, they're silos. People work in their little groups, or maybe I'm just making this up. But, but in any case, my observation is is that uh, a lot of food advocacy groups work in small groups that do not necessarily come together. And I feel like, in the wake of this election and what we need to be doing to organize as citizens uh, going forward. 
I feel like there's that some of these food movement silos should be merging. And I'm wondering if you can suggest or what you think food policy activists could do to coalesce parties around a common theme. I mean, what are some of the common threads that you think a lot of people would share, whether they're on the idealist side or the realist side? Like, how can people work together better, do you think? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's I why I'm asking you. <laughs> easy question, Katie. Um, I, oh, let me... Let me talk about a little bit about nonprofits that are working in this sure. area. They're all terrific. Right, of course. <laughs> they all have the same basic end goals. They all generally work with the same data, the same statistics. They, use, they work with the same principles. But in the nonprofit world today, there's a lot of competition based on funding. Yes. And it's very, and because of that, um, and I don't know how to change this. You know, it's very hard to get groups to work together. Um, they're competitors. Um, yeah. They have their own. They have their own mailing lists. Their own constituents. They're. You know, many of them don't want to to share. It, it would be ideal to bring all these groups together mm-hmm. into one. You know, giant coalition. And 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 something like that is done a little bit by the the um, uh, the Center for Science. In public interest. They have mm-hmm. a group. Um, I, I know that the name is NANA. I forget. I forget what the what the letters. What the acronym for. is? Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. But but they've brought together a lot of groups to work. You know, on food policy, and they've been very successful. That's run through Margot Wutan, who's uh-huh. a, tre- a tremendous leader, and I think she's she's sort of the unsung hero of of the food reform movement. Um, but you know, to try to bring those groups together, there's a lot of tension. Um, groups don't want to share, and it really comes down to they're 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 fighting over scarce resources. They're they're yeah. fighting for their survival. So you do the best you can. You know, a group um, like Nana, I think, brings as many people into the fold as they can. Mm-hmm. I think I think the best idea when you have a coalition, and I've run one, so I know this works. Is you try to bring everybody under the same umbrella. Everybody's not going to agree on supporting every policy. It's yeah. just, you know, every every group has 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 different goals and focuses. So you have to agree to disagree and let groups drop out where where they have to. And you do have to brainstorm, you know, a few main goals that everyone can coalesce around and work on. So that makes that leads me to my next question, which is what would you like to see? Nancy Hunegarth as the top five common goals that we should be pursuing. Well, remember, these are my top five common I'm, goals. You're that's gonna, right. You're going to get a different list from every, every group or person you, you talk to. Of course. And these, these just happen to be my personal interests and the ones that I think would, 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 um, Attract- would, be doable, would be doable if mm-hmm. everyone got behind them and would make a big impact. And there are plenty of other ideas and plenty of other uh, areas that, that I could add to this, but these are my top five. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I, I don't see any group that can't get behind a healthier farm bill uh, right. and really push for that. You know, stop, stop um, subsidizing soy and corn yeah. and start subsidizing healthier foods like, you know, fruits and vegetables. Sure. Um, Will that happen in our lifetime? I don't know. You've got some pretty darned tough 
lobbying groups that are very powerful. Mm-hmm. With this administration, it's definitely not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are, you know, as tied to corporate America as any as any group has ever been. Ever. But that 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 would be something I think would be worth everyone pursuing. Um, I also think everyone should get behind a soda tax. Yeah. The, the reason I think this is not that we are 100% sure that this is going to halt or, or help reverse the epidemic yet. We have data, we have evidence that soda is the single most dangerous um, uh, part of the American diet that has uh, led to obesity and diabetes. There's just an overwhelming amount of evidence about that. Yes. We've had tremendous success over the past year. I think we had six or seven soda tax measures pass in different uh, cities and, and counties in the United States. So it's sort of on a, a bit of a roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we all got behind it, we we implemented this in enough areas, we began to collect the data. We would know within a couple of years whether this was something that that really met our expectations. And if it didn't, we would move on to something else. Mm-hmm. What would your expectations be, that people would um, stop drinking as much soda or that there would be a decline in the incidence of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease? Would they be measurable in that level or would it really just be down to whether or not the soda industry took a hit? in terms of people um, buying less? No, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, the soda industry has taken a public relations hit just, just simply oh, sure. because, of, because of the discussion of soda taxes and all the information that's been disseminated about um, the dangers of drinking soda and, and the evidence that, that it damages health on so many levels. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, we, we, want, we want evidence, clear-cut evidence, that a soda tax lowers consumption of soda, particularly in segments of the population that are prone to drinking the most, which unfortunately tends to be low-income areas, mm-hmm. where, um, ironically, probably not ironically, the soda industry advertises the most. Yeah. Um, and um, I, you do have to find out, you know, and this, but this is research that's done over many years, whether if people are not drinking as much soda, you want to find out what is it they're switching to, mm-hmm. if, if anything, and if it has an impact on, on health. So um, has the rate of obesity stabilized, or has it gone down a little bit? Has the rate of uh, type 2 diabetes stabilized or gone down? You know, m- and then many other markers of health. You were talking about heart disease, cancer, because mm-hmm. some cancers are linked to um, obesity and obesity is heavily linked to consuming large quantities of, sugar. of sugary drinks. Right, right. So, so there's a lot we would have to investigate, but I think it's I, I think it's something important to do, and I think we should do it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think soda is pernicious. Um, what else besides? Okay, so we've talked about a better farm bill, soda tax. We got um, a couple food, more. Foods, yeah, food safety laws. Um, yeah. I mean, I you know I don't understand how we can't agree on this. You know, this is, <laughs> it's, it's like, do you want E. coli in your food or do you not? Right. Um, and and again, you know, this is because of very powerful um, industries, usually the the, the the meat, the cattle industry, um, poultry, chicken, pork. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they have a stake in. It, it costs them more money to ensure that uh, pathogens are not in your food. 
And as we all know, a corporation does not like to pay any more money. They like to make as much profit as possible because they're beholden to their shareholders. Right. So, so that's so they are always tr- trying to um, roll back f- food safety or, or you know laws and regulations that are put out there. Um, and and then there's the question of when food safety laws are actually implemented, are they are they being properly enforced? Um, this is not to say that the the U.S. does not have a good food safety system. No, we do. We, That's right. We do. We have we have the best in the world. Yeah. But but we all read and hear about how people are dying every year. Um, yep. Not huge amounts. Pretty huge. Ooh, Nancy, did I just lose you? Dave, I just lost my guest. I don't know what happened. He'll get her right back. We were talking about food safety, and I I just want to say that, you know, I know for a fact that um, most of the large uh, processors of industrial uh, meat production um, do worry a lot about food safety, and they do their best. But at the same time, we are confronted with things like like the HIMP, rule that they are uh, phasing into poultry and pig processing, which is to process very, very fast and then uh, to have fewer inspectors on the line. And I think that's what Nancy was getting at. It's like the enforcement aspects, like, yeah, we have all the rules and regulations you could want, but the place where we're falling down is with the um, with the inspection aspect of it and the, the, the compliance aspect of it. And that, you know, because of the... Um, the swiftness with which they want to process all these animals, they want to move that line faster and faster. That makes it much harder for inspectors to do their job. And also there are very, very much fewer. Nancy, you back? I am back. That was very strange. Yeah, that was weird. Sorry about that. Well, I was blabbering on about food safety because actually the meat processing industry is something I have studied quite extensively. In fact, I'm about to publish a book about it. Um, And uh, I was saying that, you know, like there's all those rules and regulations around food safety. And I've I've been to many a plant myself and I see the extent to which they have invested uh, heavily in trying to make their food supply safe. And where they fall down is because of the profit motivation they are moving that chain speed faster and faster, and that's where you cannot control for pathogens, right? So that's exactly. that's where the profit exactly. motive comes and, in. But then you'll find then you'll find you know that there's tremendous support in Congress, um, you know, from from legislators who mm-hmm. you know are are uh, they're beholden to many of these companies. Oh, Either yeah. they're they're in they're in their district or state, and you know they have to. Um, support them, which is understandable. You support your constituents, or, or more um, sinisterly, you know, they're getting a lot of, of um, payment. You know, getting, getting a lot campaign of campaign funds. contributions. Absolutely, yeah, no and, question. Yeah, so so it, it, it seems like such a no-brainer. Food safety. Let's make it. Let's make it better. But it's right. one of those things that once again, you know, it's follow the money. And the American consumer gets the short end of the stick too often. Absolutely. Okay, so that's number three. Now we're on to number four. What's our number four top goal? Number four is to keep school meals healthy. (laughs) Um, You're kidding. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? (laughs) The nerve of you, Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) When I first got involved in this, this whole food reform area, I mean, that's what I came in as, the angry parent going into the mm-hmm. cafeteria 
um, in my, my child's school and seeing about 10 or 11 um, vending machines filled with cookies, ice cream, Doritos, uh, chips. Yeah. Soda. I mean, you name it. It was it was a junk food paradise. And Are you a New Yorker? Cafeteria. Do you live in New York? I City? am a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, which school were your were your kids in? By the way, because I, I sent my kid to the public school too. Yeah, I'm in the Chappaqua School District. Oh, I see. So you're and upstate. Okay. I'm in Westchester. I'm in Westchester County, mm-hmm. and it's an absolutely fabulous school district with, um, you know, just. Terrifically educated teachers, the administrative staff, everyone has a PhD. Wow. But as a parent, you know, going in and even going in with a, uh, going in rationally with evidence, with a position paper, um, and this was back in 2002, right. and talking about making cha- just simple changes in, in vending machines. Um, and not even radical changes, you know, that some people see today, like we actually have all healthy food. I remember going into the superintendent's office, and you would have thought that I was asking for them to kill kittens. Yeah, <laughs> it, it 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 had it had that kind of cachet. Yeah. Um. So so Michelle Obama, bless her heart. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, we many of us advocates all over the 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 nation had been working on improving school meals at both the uh, local, uh, state, and federal level. And when she came in, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was had been written, and I believe it had been introduced, and she got behind it, yeah. and it passed. Yeah. Um, and again, this is another no-brainer. If, if, if your grandmother were here and you'd say, Grandma, what should kids eat in school? She'd say, real food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's what was passed. It, it's not perfect. Some of the some of the nutrition standards still allow in things that you know I would not like to see young children eat, mm. um, but it's a heck of a lot better than what we have, and I think um, the former first lady really raised uh, awareness about this to the point that I think many families are thinking about what their kids eat, if if not the adults as well. Right. Right. So. So this is definitely something that the um, new administration is is gunning for oh, yeah. to 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 kill. And I, I there was a document written by something called the House Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. It was a group of ultra conservatives, mm-hmm. and they had a list, I guess, of the first hundred days regulations that should be axed. Yeah. And one of the very first ones was, um, I think, the fruit and vegetable mandate yes. for the, um, you know, for schools. That's right. And what that mandate is, is, is kind of simple. Every kid who gets a school meal should have either a fruit or vegetable on their plate. Um, yeah. But this, you know, according to the House Freedom Caucus and, and many conservatives, you know, this is, this is just, you know, telling people what to do um, and, and how to live their lives. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, nanny state. And, even though they're kids, and and it's adult, and adults should be guiding them. Right, right. Well, um, that that makes me jump to a question I had for later on. But Republicans uh, often tout the idea that giving fruit kids fresh fruit and vegetables ends up being waste that they throw it out. Uh, and this is according to their propaganda. I've seen many articles about this. I've heard many, you know, many a talk show. Uh, right-wing talk show host uh, talk about this. And I, I literally heard it again from an otherwise intelligent person that I hadn't seen in years, but who is a Republican. And she said the same thing. And I, I was just like gobsmacked um, because how could you possibly uh, begrudge 
a piece of fruit or a vegetable exposing children to that, whether or not they eat it. I mean, don't they have the right? And then I currently, and then right after I had that conversation, I read a, a recent Harvard study that suggested that the reason for that waste. Uh, is more about the timing of lunch breaks and the amount of time that children are given to eat. And that is really more the reason why they don't uh, always eat their fresh fruit or vegetable. Um, so I wondered if you could comment on on that piece of propaganda and then also what the reality is in terms of waste, well, the, food waste. Sure. I mean, the reality is that um, a couple of things. Number one, you've got a generation that has grown up on junk food, fast food, fried food. Yeah. A lot of these kids don't get fruits and vegetables at home. That's the reality. Yeah. So now you've, you've got the National School Lunch Program, which is requiring the kids who get a meal to get a real meal, not a meal with, um, you know, a, uh, um, a, 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 a taco and a bag of Doritos, right. but, but a meal with, you know, a, a side of a fruit or vegetable, a whole grain, and, and some kind of a protein. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine in what universe this is a problem. <laughs> I know. Uh, I don't understand it, what it, legislator, why do legislators fight against this, and why do Republicans continue to fight against it? And that, I mean, to me, it yeah. is so counterintuitive uh, and really quite evil. Um, you know, it's just, it's so wrong on so many levels that I, I just, I don't understand why it persists. Why don't these guys want to give kids healthy food? I don't get it. Well, I can speculate. We'd, ha- we'd, have, to ha- we'd have to take them and, and get them some truth serum to get the real story out. <laughs> but I think, I, I think it goes back to our old friends, the lobbyists. I yeah. think they get a lot of pressure because... You know, things like Doritos and cookies that are the size of children's heads that my, yeah. my kids used to be able to buy in the cafeteria when they, when they were in school um, are now no longer allowed on the menu. So there's a lot of upset and angry um, corporations that used to make a lot of money, uh, yeah. you know, through school meals that are, are giving, giving legislators a hard time. And legislators have to respond to their constituents. Um, you know, it's hard for them to say no. The the other thing is, you know, there's this whole Republican theme of, you know, you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to make your own healthy choices. The nanny state can't tell you what to do. Personal responsibility. Right. And I think that's just a, a thematic um, thread that runs through the entire Republican philosophy, because you're not seeing, you're not seeing Democrats <laughs> who are who are opposed to, to healthy food, to fruits and vegetables on plates. So, um, and, and you can throw out as much data and evidence as you want that, I, I mean, I've, I've carried this into schools myself, um, e- even to obviously very progressive uh, um, administrators, and said, here's a study that says that kids who eat well in school score better on tests, mm-hmm. which school administrators love to hear because every school wants their ranking to go up. And, you know, I would sort of get sort of an eye roll. And then I would also pull out some data that, you know, schools where kids were getting healthy meals and the junk food was limited had far fewer behavioral call-outs, which is understandable because if kids are actually eating food that uh, is not, you know, highly processed and high in sugar, so they eat it, then their blood sugar crashes in an hour 
and then they're agitated, which I think all of us know how that feels when you get low blood sugar, they're they're going to behave better in the classroom. They're going to be able to concentrate. Um, But, you know, it's part, you know, from an educator standpoint, educators like to educate. They don't want to hear about these things, but I think that's changing. From a legislator standpoint, you know, from a Republican standpoint, I do think it's the lobbyist pressure, and I do think it's this personal responsibility theme. And if we start telling kids that they have to have a fruit and vegetable on their plate, um, you know, this could, this could lead to the end of society. And yet at the same time, the personal responsibility theme, uh, you know, doesn't seem to extend to things like women's reproductive rights. This is the, this is the giant disconnect. Or, or that, and, you know, they're all about the family values and they're all about, you know, telling your children what to do, the right things to do, you know, the right way to think, the right way to act. And yet telling them the right way to eat is not on that agenda. I, you know, it's so, to me, the hypocrisy is so glaring that I, I can hardly um, articulate around it. Um, but I also wanted to, well, we have one more goal, but I, I wanted to, okay, let's let's do your last goal, and then I have one, um, one interesting other question, well, many other questions, but one other question that I really particularly want to address in this context. So we're okay, goal number goal, five. The last yeah. goal is, that's okay, last goal is simply... Um, and, and this is about as controversial as you can get, updating rules on, on SNAP benefits to make it more of a t- true nutrition program. Um, mm. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to oh, get hate mail. You could get that. a lot of flack for this one, Nancy. <laughs> I, I really am going to. But I, but I, do, believe, I do believe it's the right thing. And, and the reason I think this is... is you have a program that's called, you know, a nutrition program. Supplemental and Nutrition Assistance to, Program. That's right. Exactly. And it's, it, was, it was created to help people who don't have enough food and they want to have, you know, enough fuel. So presumably they can go to school, they can go out and, and do their daily business, and they can go, you know, they can go out and, and, and get work. If people are loading up on, and, and for me, the thing again is, is soda and yeah. sugary drinks and, and other unhealthy foods in lieu of eating healthy foods, um, they're not going to be at their best. They're not going to do as well in school. They're not going to, you know, have the energy to properly look for a job. They're going to be prone to disease, which is going to take them out of the workforce. So I know it's a very sensitive subject. Um, I know that, um, you know, a lot of the hunger organizations, you know, are adamant that we have to let SNAP, people who get SNAP benefits, make whatever choices they can to, to maintain their dignity. Um, but I, I do think there are probably some tweaks we can make to the program, particularly um, making uh, sugary drinks something that can't be bought with SNAP benefits. Yeah. And then we can see if that does make a difference in the health of the people who are uh, collecting these benefits and, and using it for themselves and their families. Well, I, I, I have to agree with that is the one thing that I think needs to be changed about SNAP. And I, I would support that. And that is to take soda and sugary drinks out of the benefits package. I mean, there is the only thing we're doing with that is enriching the American Beverage Association and the associated corporations that produce those products. And we are not doing anything to um, 
provide nutrition uh, for the population that needs SNAP. And so, and we're making, and we're helping make them sicker. And we're helping making them there, sick. There is direct, direct evidence. Absolutely, and which that we pay for. Consumption of these drinks is 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 injuring, you know, anyone who overconsumes them. So, so why would American taxpayers have to be on the hook to pay for drinks that are hurting the very people we want to help? Right. No, I agree with you completely there. Otherwise, I think you got to let people do what they want. But if they want to eat chips, they're going to eat chips. Chips are cheap. Sure. They're cheap calories. Sure. I get why they need them, you know. Although I did do, when I was writing my book, I did do like a little analysis of um, the cost of ground pork, which is very cheap um, if you buy industrially produced meat, is about the same, per ounce, is about the same as an ounce of Doritos. So... <laughs> But there's, you know. a, there's a problem is that those Doritos have been engineered um, to be to be a taste and a flavor that one craves. Oh, tell which, me about which, it, girl. It's my favorite snack food. I'm- exactly. <laughs> and you know, you, you know, you're 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 fighting against forces that are larger than us with, yes. with the junk food industry. It's not that people have awful willpower or can't make the good choices. I really think that these many of these foods have been engineered. Uh, Michael Michael Moss wrote a whole book yes, about it. Fantastic um, book. I was just going to bring it up. Yeah, sugar, salt, sugar, and fat. I think it was sugar, salt. Exactly. Like, yeah, fantastic book. It's fantastic and and it's true. Yeah. Um, so people should keep in mind that uh, it's not that their willpower is lousy. It's that these foods have have been engineered to make sure that you want to crave them. And sometimes if you keep that in mind, you can break the habit. Yes. I mean, I certainly did. I I mean, I never, I didn't grow up with junk food or soda. My mom was really, my parents were both very uh, progressive about food, and we never ate TV dinners or processed foods of any kind. They were just not happening. In fact, we would beg for them. Um, (laughs) And so I raised my own child the same way, and we never had soda in the house or anything like that. Um, But I do remember when when she was little, if we went on the train, we were allowed to have Doritos. Like, that was the only place. (laughs) Right, and that's and that's the way to do it and as it a parent. Is. You know, yeah. you don't keep you don't keep the junk and the sh- and the soda away from the kids. You just make it as as periodic treats, and then that's kids right. associate it with. Okay, I have a, a one soda or two sodas a month. Like, you know, when I go on a trip, um, I get a bag of of Doritos. Right. You know, this this twenty four seven push to have junk food with at every meal and snack is why we're we're in the bind we're in right now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now we are sadly running out of time, but um, so now we've done our top five goals, which was excellent. That was very good. I like. I really applaud your goals, Nancy. Um, I'd like you. to see you be in charge of the Department of Agriculture. Um, we're going to talk about that. I'm and available. Nancy, <laughs> I love you. Um, we're going to talk about that. We're talking about Betsy DeVos in about for about two seconds. But what I wanted, this is my big question for you. What would you recommend as a means to communicate to Americans why a food policy should be a top legislative priority and not something that we let, quote, the industry take care of, as was suggested to me by uh, the Republican congressman from Kentucky, Mr. Thomas K. Massey? He literally said that to me. He said, we should, we well, just, I, food industry takes care of that. Why are you worrying about a food policy? <laughs> well, 
like, well, um, uh, I, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna have a very different opinion than that gentleman. But I mean, you know, I'm just speaking. Let me speak as a parent, which I think can, yeah. you know, can can go to the heart of of any person. You want everybody wants to give their their children the best of life, and they're not going to get the best of life if they're not properly nourished. And, you know, if you don't have a food system that is working to um, get healthy foods, um, you know, to families or into schools, Mm -hmm. or even or, or even if you have a food environment that is so, as some people have said, toxic, that people can't avoid eating a lot of garbage food. We've, you know, we've got a big problem in this country. We're damaging not only the health of adults, but of the next generation. Yeah. Um, and and that's pretty darn serious. I mean, do do you remember when the military? I think um, I do. The military. I mean, the military doesn't mess around. They couldn't they, find soldiers fit to serve because they were all so fat. Exactly. If that doesn't say it all, yeah. I, I don't know what 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 does. But, you know, for some reason, this personal responsibility, you know, freedom must ring through America thing, you know, somehow has, has uh, weaseled its way into the way we look at our food system. And quite frankly, it's killing us. Slowly but surely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. So let's, in our last couple of minutes, let's talk a little bit about, um, well, who do you want to talk about more, Sonny Perdue or Betsy DeVos? Oh, God. <laughs> Wait a harsher mellow, right? <laughs> well, let's start, with Son- let's start with Sonny because he's directly related to, to, uh, Absolutely. to food. Farm um, bill, school food, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, every 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 food reform um, advocate has had their eye on who who the heck's going to be chosen as Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem is he doesn't seem to have a big track record um, in some of the issues that that we've discussed here today. I, I haven't heard, or, or I haven't found anyway, uh, you know, him, him making any statements on the importance of school food, on no. soda taxes. I'm not optimistic based on his background. He's he seems to be you know someone who's very um, very tightly intertwined with with the industry that, mm-hmm. that he's he's now going to regulate. Right. Um, from what I read about him, he he sold fertilizer, so yes. he has strong relationship with the agribusiness with with chemical companies. He he was also. Um, I think he he actually has a company that that. Uh, Right now, the trades agricultural commodities. Yes, he does. And mm-hmm. and I think that's internationally, if, yep. if I remember correctly. Um, so that that doesn't, in, in my opinion, that doesn't bode well. And if you look yep. at his list of donation, he's got he's gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars over his career in politics. He he was the the governor of Georgia, mm-hmm. as, as most people may know, but he got you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations from, from agribusiness interests. So this is a man that seems very firmly um, comfortable with the agri- agribusiness community. And to my knowledge, he hasn't had much uh, interaction with the public health community. So that uh, that's a big red flag. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, just like, I mean, do you remember that movie, Dr. Caligari's Cabinet or the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Do you remember that horror movie? No. Did you ever see that? 
Oh. No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, well, it's been updated, but I think the original came out in like the 40s. But it's it's a horror movie. And, you know, it's a scientist who's done some very weird experimentation on a remote and isolated island. And when I think about the cabinet that Trump has assembled around himself, I think of Dr. Caligari's cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, they do seem, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. It was sort of like, you know, they pulled out a a, um, a piece of paper and said, "Now, who can we get to tear apart every single thing that's gone on in these particular issue areas right. <laughs> over right. the last last half century?" Yeah, and those were the cabinet nominees they they put out, whether yeah. it's DeVos or whether whether it's Purdue. I mean, it's Pruitt, one after another. Puzder. I mean, just disastrous. Literally disastrous. And now Betsy DeVos, now she has never, in her push for charter schools, I'm suspecting, I don't know very much beyond that about her, uh, except that how much money she's donated to the Republican Party. Um, <clears throat> she has never had a track record of having any interest in school food programs, right? Does she even know I've about them? Se- yes. <laughs> I've never seen anything reported or heard anything that she has any interest in, in nutrition as it relates to schools. Wow. And and from what I understand, I mean, she's isn't she really interested in, in a lot of for-profit schools? Yes. Um, which which means that the place where schools, you know, love to cut costs is often school meals. Oh yeah. Um, so I I don't think she's going to be someone, you know, from what I see so far, who's going to going to have an interest in keeping school meals healthy. Well, I, I mean, I, I gather that her interest is largely in dismantling public school systems um, and offering people vouchers, tax breaks, and so on. And it's, you know, it's sort of the same thinking that suggests that uh, having a health savings account is going to make up for uh, not having insurance policy. I mean, you know, it's it's magical thinking on some level that people uh, in you know middle and lower middle class and poor people are going to be able to save enough money to either pay for a charter school or pay for a private school or pay for a health insurance policy. It's just, I don't know where these people live. I don't know what. It is magical thinking because they can barely make ends meet. Absolutely. As it is. And to have to, you know, people are going to have to, forget about the education part, but, you know, with a health savings account, people are going to be putting off um, important visits to the doctor. Yes, ma'am. They don't have money in that in that account, and that's what makes that particular program so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, a thirteen hundred dollar tax break or whatever it is they're talking about will will buy you one month of insurance if you're lucky. Yeah, and and that's <laughs> that's just not enough. Yeah. I mean, what you know, the ACA certainly. Uh, has, has its problems in it, yep. but it's something that we need to fix rather than repeal, yeah. and it can be fixed. Yeah. Well, I'm so, looking for that um, to be your next. I just hope your next crusade, Nancy. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sorry. I, that's that's my worst flaw as a radio host. I talk too much. Um, but you, I think you talk just enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're adorable and I love you and I hope you come back soon. Let's, um, we will unfortunately have to wrap it up here. Um, but Nancy, I want you to tell people, first of all, promote yourself shamelessly. Uh, tell people where they can find your articles, which they should be reading. There should be, uh, you know, a constant attention to your byline and um, where they can read more about you in general. Um, well, I, I uh, do have a consulting business where I, I, um, I work on, on, um, Food um, policy and advocacy issues. You can you can find me at nfhconsulting.com. Um, I have a whole website. You can read about me, 
And right now I'm mostly contributing um, to Forbes. Um, which is kind of exciting because I feel like I'm not preaching to the choir there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, um, you know, I've written for many, many other wonderful publications, but um, I'm interested to see if um, I get some some uh, new outreach through through, through my my, um, my my posts on Forbes. Um, and you know, I'm always happy to talk to people about. Um, Food and advocacy issues. Um, you know, again, you can you can get my email address off of my consulting website, and you know, would love to talk to you, hear your ideas, and help out any folks or organizations or communities that are struggling with these issues right now. Well, thank you very much. So that's N as in Nancy, F as in Fink, H as in Hunegarth. Uh, consulting right. NFH consulting right yeah dot com dot right. com and can I can I say one can I say one positive thing yes. so everybody leaves on a happy note yes I know it it looks like over the next at least four years hopefully that will be it um, it's going to be you know we're not going to get anything done um, on on food reform or food advocacy at the federal level but I want to encourage people to really try and push policies and um, programs at the local and state level. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you, know, you can get so much done there. That's where the soda taxes are passing. Right. Um, you know, your community, you can, you, can, you can do a lot to improve the food environment in your community. We can also focus on putting a lot of pressure on corporations to make changes, which is sort of a new area that we're beginning to get into where, where we're seeing corporations bend to... Um, you know, corporate pressure to consumer pressure. Absolutely. So it's going to be it's it's going to be tough federally, but we got plenty of work to do over the next few years, and we got to get started. And thank you for your part in leading that effort, Nancy. I really mean that. And thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you'll come back soon. And uh, thank you to my sponsor, our, I guess our new sponsor, right, Dave? Marriott Restaurant Group. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network dot uh, org family. And uh, we'll see you next week. I can't quite remember who's coming on next week, but I know it'll be great, just like Nancy. Thanks for listening, folks. See you then. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.